Thank you, Pastor Mark. Thank you all so much for being here and participating in this special time of worship at the Lord's Supper. And I trust that everybody had the opportunity to participate in one of our Christian growth groups, our Bible study sessions that take place at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. And we have Bible study for every age group. So if you are not actively involved, I encourage you, um, come to me or one of the pastors will tell you where to plug in one of the groups. And you can enjoy some fine teaching by some fine teachers. And uh, I assure you, this will enrich your experience on the Lord's Day. Uh, Nothing like being in the Word of God. Speaking of the Word of God, if you'll go ahead and turn in yours, uh, your copy of of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Uh, Limber limber up or loosen up your fingers because we'll be walking through the pages of God's Word. I want to walk you through the Scriptures to help you and I to understand the pervading problem of idolatry in the Bible as it pertains to the people of God and how it continues to hinder those of us who are Christians in our walk with God and our relationship with the Lord. In fact, I've entitled the message this morning, Confronting Idols of the Heart. And, and I, I understand that, you know, in the American culture, unfortunately, idols have taken on a more or less a positive kind of a connotation because of programs like American Idols and people talking about their sports idols or their music idols or musicians or singers. And so there's not that negative thought uh, associated with it that the scripture certainly attaches to idolatry. As we come to this message, and I think the timing of it is is certainly appropriate because as we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, this probably as much as any other activity of the church is a time for the people of God to, to have deep inward introspection, honest introspection regarding our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so it's a good time to just take a deep, good look at our hearts and and hold that up against our relationship with the Lord. So as you are in the book of Genesis, I'll take you back, first of all, to the uh, chapter 31. And and that's where we'll kind of have a launching off from there. And we'll look at this. The problem of idols among God's people is a deep-seated historical problem that goes far back in the New in the Old Testament and and tracks all the way through the scriptures from beginning to end if you will in the relationship of God's people to to God and um, I I know Dr. John MacArthur said this about worshiping idols it's it's really profound listen to what he said he said the worship of man-made representations idols was nothing less than hatred of the true God. So for anyone to observe in in idolatry, to bow down to and to worship some form of an idol, is actually an expression of their disdain for or hatred for God. And I'll tell you, God didn't mince any words when it came to issuing His own warning to His own people as he established a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel where he stood on the matter of idolatry. In fact, just hold your place there in Genesis because I want to read from an excerpt out of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is at a time when the nation of Israel is is in that trek through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And, of course, God has already established the covenant with them. And here in the country of Moab or in proximity of Moab, God is going to renew his covenant with his people. And basically the covenant that he has with the nation of Israel, that former group of 
former slaves or that band of former slaves is that I will be your God and you will be my people. And if you obey me and you trust me and you follow me, I will bless you and I will continually bless you and you will enjoy my blessings. However, if you choose to turn your heart from me, God says, I will become your enemy. Listen to what God says through Moses in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. God gave a stern warning. This is not the first time God has warned his people, but you'll see God continually reminds his people of the danger of observing the practice of idolatry. Now, as, as I take you over to Genesis chapter 31, this is the generation of Jacob, and we've been studying this in our Christian growth group as we walk through the Old Testament together. We've been looking at the life of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And, and, and you may recall that in the, in the storyline, Jacob, also known as the trickster, had tricked his older brother Esau out of the birthright that was, you know, Esau's by right. And then later, again, tricked his brother with the help of his mother, uh, Rebecca, tricked his brother out of his blessing, which was fully, you know, uh, Esau's by right. And, and so at this time, you might say that, that Esau's not really amused with his younger brother. In fact, he hates him. In fact, he, he says he's going to kill him. In fact, he probably would kill him if he could get his hands on him. But his mother, Jacob's mother, cautions Jacob and says, Honey, you really ought to run. Like, run fast and run far. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. In fact, she tells him, I want you to go all the way back across the Euphrates on the eastern side of the Euphrates River, which, by the way, was the original homeland of Abraham. And, and, and there you'll find my brother, your uncle Laban. And stay with him. Honey, just get out of here. And so Jacob ran. I thought it was interesting on his way, running from his brother, that Jacob stops in what is Canaan land, which would be eventually the promised land. And there at a place called Bethel, Jacob has a dream one night. Remind you, he's, he's on his run, running for his life. He's leaving his family, familiar surroundings. He's lonely. He's there. And God comes to Jacob in the dream and basically tells him, I will be your God and I will establish a nation through you. Same, same promise that God had given to Abraham. And, and Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending from heaven. And so he recognized this was a, definitely a place of worship. And so he, rec- he called the place Beth-El, the house of God. And then he trekked on to uh, the area which is on the east side of the Euphrates River, where his uncle Laban lives, and uh, is, is current day Iraq. And, and I'm telling you that because there he is under the headship and the household of Uncle Laban, who, by the way, is just as much a trickster as J- Jacob is. So you got two tricksters at, at each other. And, and Uncle Laban gets the upper hand. But anyway, you know the story. Jacob falls in love with uh, his uncle's daughter, which would have made for cousins. That sounds a little dangerous. But anyway, he fell in love with this beautiful daughter of Laban called Rachel. And Rachel just happened to be the second oldest daughter. And so Jacob agrees to work for uh, the, the hand of Rachel so they can marry her. And Laban agrees. And then, of course, you know the story. On the day of the wedding, the, the honeymoon, in fact, the next day, he finds out Uncle Laban has done the great switch. 
He switched daughters. So Jacob went to bed thinking he was going to bed to consummate his marriage with Rachel. Wakes up in the morning and there's the one that is described as having cow eyes. Uh, her older sister, uh, Leah. And so, uh, you know, you can imagine the shock and surprise. So, you know, love will make you do strange things. And, and Jacob goes on and says, I'll work seven more years. And so he works seven more years. That's love, gentlemen. And ladies, take note. Young ladies, you know, that guy might want to invest in you before he uh, proposes or whatever. But anyway, Jacob works another seven years. And so, now, now, where we are at chapter 31 is Jacob now has with Leah and with uh, Rachel as his wives and he's starting to build up a family he's building up livestock he's getting to be pretty prosperous and God comes to him and says okay it's time for you to go back home and so you know he knows his father-in-law is not going to like this very much so he takes up his wives Laban's daughters all of his, his children Laban's grandchildren and grandparents I can see the hair standing up on the back of your neck the idea of somebody stealing your grandchildren right from under you like that but he does and takes all of his livestock and his servants and they start fleeing back towards uh, homeland, which would be there in, in Canaan. Well, in chapter 31, Laban finds out, verse 32, uh, 22, Laban finds out Jacob's fled. So he mounts a posse. Those of you that watch the old Western movies, you know how it is. They get a bunch of guys and say, come on, let's go catch them, you know. So they, they take off after Jacob. And of course, Jacob and his wives and children and livestock, they can't move as fast. So Laban and his fleet of posse members catch him. And, and of course, Laban is, is furious. But, but I think it's very interesting because... In verse 26, when Laban has caught up with Jacob and he's confronting him, and, and, and Laban says, you know, what have you done that you've stolen away uh, uh, unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? Well, why did you flee away so secretly and steal away from me and not tell me for I might have sent you away with joy and songs with timbrel and harp? Jacob's thinking, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> And, 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 and you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have uh, done foolishly in doing so. But look at verse 29 there in chapter 31. It is in my power to do harm to you, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. In other words, don't, don't harm him. So look at Laban's response now. This is the only recourse that he has. Because he knows he can't talk about his daughters because they're rightfully Jacob's wives. He can't talk about his grandchildren because they're rightfully Jacob's children. All the livestock belong to Jacob. All the servants belong to Jacob. The only thing that Laban can fall back on now as a recourse, as something to say, I've got evidence, is look, look with me and what he says. And now, verse 30, and now you have surely gone, uh, and now you have surely gone because you greatly longed for your father's house. I understand that. But why did you steal my gods? Of all the things. Why did you go and steal my gods? In other words, my idols. You see, don't forget, Laban lives in a territory that is pagan, idolatrous, and he and his family worship idols. Which means that Leah and Rachel were idol worshippers as well. Now, the story goes on because, you see, Jacob didn't realize that Rachel had stolen the family idols. So let this be a lesson. Don't go stealing other people's gods, okay? 
Um, whatever you do. Um, Rachel has stolen uh, um, the family gods. And so in verse 34, Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in her camel's saddle back, if you will, uh, bag, and sat on them. And so when Laban was searching all the tents and Jacob is egging them on, Jacob says, go ahead, search. Look, I don't have your gods. Look anywhere you want to. He didn't know Rachel had them. But being the clever young lady that she was, she was sitting on the saddlebag with all the little idols in there. And when he came to her, he says, oh, dad, she's talking to Laban. Oh, dad, you know, it's that time of the month and I really don't want to get up. And he's, oh, oh, okay, okay. So off they go with the idols, with the pagan gods. Now, Jacob comes from a family who worshiped God, Jehovah, Abraham. That's, in his, that's, that's his upbringing. But now, infiltrated into the family is the worship of idols through Leah and Rachel and onto the children. How do we know this? Because as you turn over a few pages in your Bible, in the Old Testament there, Genesis chapter 35. Chapter 35, Jacob has made amends with his brother Esau. Everything's fine between them now. Jacob and his family are going to live there in Canaan. And in the proximity of pagan people all around them. And it just so happens that one, Jacob and all of his household, his sons, his daughters and all of that. One of his daughters decides to go on an excursion. She wants to see how the pagan girls live. Go shopping at one of the malls that you know, just where the latest styles are for some of the heathens. And so she's out there and she's having a good time. And lo, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Don't look in your translations of mall. But the fact is, while she's out away from her father's protection, she's abducted. She's abducted by a man by the name of Shechem, who happens to be the son of a prince of one of these pagan people groups. And so he, he takes her. He rapes her. Then he has the nerve to go to his dad and say, Hey, Dad, I really like this Hebrew girl. I want her as my wife. Would you work out the arrangements? <laughs> well, that didn't go over too well with Jacob. Jacob tried to conceal it, but his sons found out. And so when his sons found out that their sister Dinah had been violated and was being held hostage by one of these pagan heathens, they decided, okay, we'll have to deal with this. Well, you know, you can understand the, their, their anger and wanting to have revenge, but the way they went about it probably would cost them in, in, in the future. So, so what they did is they went to the, the, the prince of the land, Shechem's father, uh, and, and they told him, Hamar, they said, listen, we'll work out a deal with you. If you really want to, to marry with our daughters and we'll marry your daughters and we'll have a covenant, we'll just get along, we'll coexist together and trade and what have you. Uh, we're okay with that, but there's only one thing you need to do. All the men of your uh, municipality, all, of your, all your men in your tribe will have to be circumcised because we're all circumcised and there's no, no letting down that standard. So Shechem and his dad, they said, you know what, we can do that. (laughs) I don't think it was so fair that they agreed for all the other men too. Uh, But anyway, everybody, all the other men uh, went along with this arrangement, if you will. And the scripture goes on, and I'm just kind of summarizing for you. But when the day came that all these pagan men were there in the area of Shechem, were circumcised, it tells us that on the third day, 
the, the most painful day, I guess you would say, in the recovery from that rude, crude surgery, that uh, they were not feeling like being active that day. So two of Jacob's sons took it upon themselves to go and to vindicate their sister, Simeon and Levi, went into the town, and with their swords they slew every single one of those men in their state of recovery. Now, I know this is crude before lunchtime, but it's the Bible, okay? Now, why is that a big deal? Because other pagan country uh, nations were watching and seeing how ruthless these Hebrews were. That caused concern for Jacob. Jacob says, what woe, or something like that in Hebrew. We're, we're in trouble. You guys, because they not only slew the men, they took all the, the, their wives as slaves. They took their, their, the bounty. They looted the whole place, got everything. So bring us to, to chapter 35. I want you to look with me in verse 1. Then, then God said to Jacob, this is because of what has transpired, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, just back up to verse 30 of chapter 35 and listen to this dialogue between Jacob and Simeon and Levi. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number and they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Of course, they retorted, well, should they treat our sister that way? So you understand, Jacob has got his back against the wall. He thinks, we're going to be annihilated. My sons have done something that in the sight of these pagan countrymen, they're not going to tolerate. They're going to gang up on us. They're going to kill us. And we are definitely in the minority. God understands that. He tells Jacob to go back to Bethel. Remember I told you Bethel was a place that God had encountered Jacob on the way fleeing from his brother. Now, God tells him to go back to this place that represents worshiping God to Jacob. It's just a very special place. Just like coming into this sanctuary, there was no mystical, magical powers about the place itself. But being in the sanctuary, being before the Lord's table is a special time. It's a special place. It should generate in us a deep reverence for God. And going back to Bethel for Jacob and his whole household was a matter of saying to God, Lord, we're in trouble. We are helpless on our own. We need you. So it was a humble recognition of coming before God. But I want you to look at verse 2. Because I told you, the problem of idolatry permeated the whole household of Jacob. And it would be a haunting problem for the people of God all the way through the scriptures. Well, look in verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God. In other words, we'll worship who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods. Those are the ones that Rachel was setting on, on this camel saddlebag that she treasured and took with her, stole from her dad, if you will. 
took all the foreign gods which were in their hands and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And then they journeyed. So what, what I think it's important for us to understand, the problem of idolatry had taken hold even in the midst of those who call themselves the people of God. And it would continue to be a menace in their relationship, the relationship between God and his people. How do we know that this was a big deal to God? If you go over to the book of Exodus as we progress now, because the children of Israel are fleeing out of Egypt, God has delivered them, Moses is leading them, and there in the wilderness, God is establishing his covenant relationship with his people. He's establishing a relationship with a people who will be his people, and he is committed to be their God, but there are some expectations. And right out of the gate, right out of the gate in chapter 20, as God has given the Ten Commandments, Listen to the very first ones that God gives through Moses to the, to the Israelites that day in the Sinai. He says, I am the Lord your God, Yahweh, the eternal God, the great I am, the beginning and the end. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And if we were teaching our children, we'd say, now repeat that again. Repeat back to me. What did, I, what did daddy just say? What did mommy just say? And God may have said through Moses, make them repeat. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of his fathers, of the fathers on their children to the third, fourth generation of those who hate me. Remember what we said? Dr. MacArthur said idolatry is actually an expression of hate towards God to allow anything to come between us and God. That's strong language, but it's true. So why is God having to take this step of uh, this measure so stringently with his people? Don't forget, for hundreds of years now, since the day of Joseph, they have resided in a pagan land, Egypt, in the midst of a plethora of false gods. I mean, Egypt was polytheistic to the hilt. They had a God for everything. And, and so this influence had come into the hearts and the minds of the Israelites. And God was saying, I will not tolerate that. Well, did it take? I know God was doing what we as parents and grandparents like to do sometimes, and even as leaders of the church. Sometimes we see a potential problem beginning to emerge, and we want to, as Barney Fife would say, nip it. You know, nip it at the bud. God was trying to nip the problem at the bud. Did it work? Well, for a little while... For a little while. Let me move you in Exodus over to chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. You may recall that God called Moses up on the mountain. And Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. The children of Israel. Hadn't been that long since God had been very clear, very very pointed in his expectations related to false gods and, and, and false images. Moses was up there with God and, and, and maybe a day went by, two days, three days, a week, maybe a couple of weeks. The, the people are getting impatient. 
One of the first things they do, look at verse 1 of chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, Aaron is the priest. Aaron heard God's word just like the people heard God's word. What would have been Aaron's response as a responsible priest? Are you kidding? Didn't you hear what God said about false gods and idols? Well, let's call it peer pressure. Because we know Aaron's response was, uh, okay, go get all the gold you can gather. Take your earrings out, take your rings off, you know, pull your gold teeth if you have to. Bring all the gold you can. And, and I think it's interesting because there in verse 3, as the people did that, they brought all the gold. It says that in verse 4, he received the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. Which implies he was very meticulous and careful about designing what he was making. The reason I point that out is because when he was confronted by Moses later, <laughs> he told Moses, Moses said, what have you done? What have you done, Aaron? And Aaron says over <laughs> verse 24, he says, well, you know, they, I told them to bring some gold and they gave it to me and I just cast it into the fire and poof, out comes a golden calf. <laughs> I'm sure Moses is like, so what am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that the problem, like a spiritual cancer, just continues to, to prevail and, and, and to manifest itself and to haunt the people of God continuously. Now, we're studying in the book of Joshua just recently in our Christian growth groups because now the, the people of God, a new generation, have gone into the promised land. Maybe they've learned their lesson. You know, Moses... You know, gave them a good scolding and God rebuked them. And so now they've gone into the promised land. And, you know, and, and so maybe, maybe now they've learned their lesson. They've seen God work wonders in, you know, in, in the promised land as well as going through the wilderness. So in chapter 24 of Joshua, in chapter 24 of Joshua, let's see what Joshua had to say as he is preparing to relinquish the reins of leadership. He's, he's an older man getting ready to die. He, he, challenges, he challenges the people concerning the problem of idolatry. Isn't that interesting? There in chapter 24, look at verse 15. You know this very well, I'm sure. And it seems, Joshua was saying to the nation of Israel, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, <laughs> I can't imagine why, but he says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, talking about Abraham, talking about Sarah, and that generation that came up. He says, whether it's the old, ancient idols, those gods, or the more contemporary gods, idols, he says, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you know, that, that challenge should resonate in the heart of every spiritual head of a household. I'm not saying that, that wives, mothers, 
and, and children don't have a responsibility to take a stand. But gentlemen, the Bible clearly says that we have been given a God-given role of responsibility to be the head spiritually of our household under the headship of Christ. And every father who calls himself a Christian and claims to know Jesus Christ personally should be able to say with resolution to his family, not just in his words, but through his actions, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now granted, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and there's a growing sentiment of anti-Christian out there, and Christians are being looked upon with, with, with uh, question and, and almost uh, ostracism now. But irregardless of where the world is headed, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that's what's lacking in far too many families across the land. That was what was lacking in the nation of Israel. Fathers were not leading their families to solely, wholeheartedly worship God. The subtle presence of idolatry continued to take its toll on the people of God. So as we go from just the problem of, of idols outwardly as, as objects of worship, false worship, let's think about, as my, my title implies, the presence of idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. Listen to how Claude King on this subject describes idols of the heart. He says, an idol of the heart is anything that captures your love and attention in a way that keeps you from your first love for God, for Christ. Anything. It's interesting because as you fast forward in the history of the nation of Israel, all the way over to about the time period of 590 B.C., this is about the time that you know, Israel is living in idolatry, they're living in immorality, they're living in rebellion against God, and God is bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel. Again, idols and idolatry is a big part of the problem. And through the prophet Ezekiel, if you have your Bibles, quick, you turn over there to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. This great prophet of old. I'll set a, a, a stage for you because... This is prior to the fall of the city of Jerusalem, before the, the destruction of the temple in 586. This is when the empire, the Babylonian empire, has virtually crushed all the competition in the area, and all that's left standing is little old Israel. They've taken care of the Egyptians. They've smashed the Assyrians. All that's left is little old Judah, the people of God. So Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian leader takes about 10,000 Israelites into captivity, including Ezekiel. So they're actually living in Babylon, which is the land of Iraq today. And, and there, even there, God is confronting his people through Ezekiel of a problem that is robbing them of the blessings of God because it's idols of the heart. Look at chapter 14 in Ezekiel, verse 1. Now some of the elders of Israel, that would be the spiritual religious leaders who were there with Ezekiel in, in Babylon. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. 
Should I let myself be inquired of by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Do you notice the transition? Idols are not referred to so much as outward symbols of worship, but now God is looking deep within. And the whole ministry of Ezekiel is appealing to the people to consider their hearts before God. And so God is saying, listen, whether they bow down to a physical object and worship, he says they have idols in their hearts. Remember what Paul King said, an idol of the heart is anything that captures your love and attention and, and, and replaces your first love for God. Anything that interferes with our relationship with Jehovah. And God calls them idols of the heart. Can you see the implications as we move into a contemporary setting today? If I took the deacons and made the rest of the pastors and deacons and we formed a posse, since I'm talking about a posse, I must have watched the Western recently. And we went out amongst the church members, unannounced, come knocking on your door. Betsy, you come to the door, and there's me and the deacons and pastors. Let us in, Betsy. We're going to scour through your house. Look for idols, gentlemen. Look for idols. You know, we look under a bed and under a sofa and in the kitchen and in the cabinets and looking for idols, right? And, you know, and then we would say, no, there's, there are no idols here. And then we go to Wendy's house or go to Jeanette's house and, and you know, and on and on. To just looking for idols. We probably wouldn't find any. Little statuettes or statues or, you know, little objects to worship. And, and you might be saying, shoo, we're off the hook. Not, not quite. Not, not so fast. We, we can only look in closets and underbeds and in cabinets. But let me tell you something. The God of the universe, who knows all, sees all, looks into your heart. Looks into our hearts. And the Lord Jesus understood that. He understood that idolatry continued to be a menacing problem for people in their relationship with God, even in His day. You've heard that old expression, at the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. That's where it's at, folks. It's not so much external. It's all transpiring in the heart. First of all, it's a matter of misplaced love. Idolatry, even in a contemporary, in Jesus' day, in our day, idolatry is a matter of misplaced love. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 22 when the Lord Jesus was asked by the scribe who was trying to trick him, Oh Lord, which is the greatest of all the commandments? You know what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That is the first and the greatest commandment. Do you understand what God is saying, brothers and sisters? Our love for Him. Our love for Him. He must be the supreme object of our love. Above everyone, above everything, we should love no one, nothing more than we love God. If we do, we fall dangerously 
into this practice of idols of the heart. It's a matter of misplaced love, but listen, idolatry, even in contemporary setting of today, it's a matter of earthly treasures. Listen to the words of Jesus. You remember when he was preaching on the Mount of Olives? Or not the Mount of Olives, but the Sermon on the Mount. And, and there he was teaching great principles of the kingdom of God for, for you and me to understand what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to what he says in verse 21. You know it by heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The origin of idolatry begins when we shift our love our deepest, our best, our greatest love for God and began to take and shift it around and began to look for yet another object. When other things become the treasure of our lives, watch out. Jesus, you may recall in Matthew chapter 13, described Himself and the kingdom of God as that great pearl of price. That pearl hunter who saw many pearls, but when he found that one pearl, the one that was of great price, unequal value, sold everything. Because that was the treasure of his life. And in essence, the Lord was saying, I must become that in your life. That you will abandon everything else if necessary because of your deep love. Let me ask you, dear friend, let me ask you, is Jesus Christ the treasure of your heart? Do you treasure Him? I don't mean just know Him and respect Him and refer to Him occasionally, but is He the treasure of your life? And does it show? Does He know that? And do those around you know that? If we're not careful, we can easily find ourselves treasuring other things. The Apostle John, you may recall in his epistle, there in 1 John, warned contemporary Christians of that day. And let me tell you something, it's just as relevant today as if John were still at Patmos and wrote this and mailed it to Cornerstone Baptist Church today. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John warned, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you understand the eternal significance of knowing where your first love is? Do you see the eternal ramifications of being able to honestly say who is the treasure of your life? And listen, 
God understands. He's not suggesting that God's children can't enjoy the blessings of the world that God brings so freely to us in the form of family and friends and possessions and experiences and opportunities. God's not saying hey, we got to live in poverty. That's not it. But we must be vigilant. And I emphasize that word, vigilant. We must be vigilant to guard against anything becoming an idol of our heart. Just as Claude King defined, he went on, Claude King, to issue this little test. I hate tests. Don't y'all? I mean, some of y'all are brainiacs and it doesn't bother you. You shine. Not me. I don't like final exams. So I'm praying hard for our college students. I never liked pop tests. I thought they were cruel. I don't even like driver's tests. Okay? Alright? I don't even like a litmus test. <laughs> but here's the test. He says, ask yourself. Or tell yourself. If God asked me to give away, give any of this up, would I resist? Think about the things that are important to you. Think about the people that are important to you. Think about the relationships that are important to you. He says, if God asked me to give any of this up, would I resist? If you're holding on too tightly, the item, person, relationship may be an idol of the heart. You may have heard me talk about this illustration. I read this a long time ago about these uh, uh, natives on this particular Caribbean island uh, I guess it was Caribbean. It, it, it sounded like Gilligan's Island. But anyway, they had a lot of monkeys. And they would, they would try to catch these monkeys to sell them to zoos and circuses and things like that. And a lot of the traditional ways didn't work to catch a monkey. So they knew that monkeys love fruits and nuts and berries and things that are sweet. So they took a gourd and hollowed it out. And they bore a hole in that uh, gourd. They knew about how big a monkey's hand was. And so they bored that hole just big enough so the monkey could <clears throat> squeeze his hand through there. And then he'd grab a hold of a big old fistful of nuts and berries. He could just smell them coming out of that. And so then he would go to pull his hand back through. Well, guess what? When you got a handful of something and your hand could barely go in the first time, he can't get it out. Well, they would tie that gourd to the tree. So now get this. That monkey, even though the guys were coming up with their cage and their sticks and everything, that monkey would see them and he still... Uh, 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 and he won't give up that handful of nuts and berries for freedom... But let's him capture him because he's determined he's going to have that handful of nuts. You know what? We laugh about that or at least smile and chuckle. But is that not like people in many ways? What gourd do you have your hands stuck in of the things of the world? That if God were to say to you, let go right now. Give it up right now. You would be, uh, 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 uh. I know it's a crude illustration. But John has a very stern warning to people of God. Don't fall in love with the things of the world. Do you understand what Jesus was saying in Luke chapter 14, verse 33? He said, so likewise, who of you, whoever of you who does not forsake all these things cannot be my disciple. I mean, it sounds like tough language when Jesus says in, in Luke 14, 26, in 27, He says... <clears throat> If any man comes to me and hates not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters and yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. 
It doesn't mean you have to hate your family. It doesn't mean that you can't have anything. But Jesus says, I'll tell you this. You cannot be one of my followers if I am not number one in your life. I've got to be the object of your heart. I've got to be the treasure of your life. And everything else will fall into place. Finally. See, I've walked you all the way through the scripture. You know I wouldn't miss Revelation, right? See, we're going from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation. Y'all say, that crazy preacher will starve to death. Hang in there. We're almost there. Because in his letters to the church, churches, particularly to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus speaks a stern word of warning through John the Apostle to the church. To the church. Are you listening, church? Are you listening, church leaders? Jesus says, I see your good works, your labor, your patience, how you don't bear with evil. I see how you've tested the apostles to make sure that they're true. I see how you've persevered in tough times and you're patient and you've labored for my namesake. I see how you don't become weary. Oh, I see all these good things that you are about. But nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first love for me. Where did it go? Sounds like a desperate spouse as a husband or wife are packing the bags to leave or abandon them or divorce them. And they wonder, where did the love go? How is it possible that you would love me so unselfishly and die for me if necessary years ago, but now you treat me like I'm leftovers? How is it possible that you could lose such a passionate love? And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus. Be careful! Be careful lest you practice idolatry as a congregation. And you lose your first love for me. Oh, listen, we fall prey to the same temptation as churches. Because you see our buildings, our swelling membership role, our multitude of fancy contemporary programs, our ever-increasing financial investments and resources, our charming polished preacher, our wonderful musicians, our music ministry. Oh, my goodness, If we're not careful, any one of them can become an idol of the heart for the church that replaces our first love for Christ. I challenge myself as your senior pastor. I challenge each one of our pastors. I challenge our deacons and other church leaders. Let's make this the litmus test of our leadership. Are we continually making it evident to this congregation that nothing, nothing comes close to the priority of loving Christ in what we do, how we give, how we worship, how we minister, that Christ Jesus always be the object of our love. Listen, we have just gathered at the Lord's table for the Christian the greatest symbolic representation of the greatest love the world has ever known. Do you understand? These elements represent a love that the world cannot imitate. 
and cannot duplicate. Because in His broken body and His shed blood, Jesus said to you and me, I love you with everything in me. And Jesus said Himself in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. So as I close, I ask, what about you? What about you? As you have partaken the elements of the table that remind you of the sacrificial love of Jesus for you, what, where does your love stand? Your love for the Lord. Is there... Are there idols of the heart that interfere with your passionate love and dedication and devotion to the Lord and obedience to His Word? There is a remedy. You're not a hopeless case. Praise the Lord. There is grace. Confess it. Put your finger on it. Confess it. Is it a relationship? Is it academic goals? Is it, is it a career? Is it money? Is it a house? Is it a car? Is it your social activities? Is it your, is it your friendship circle? What is it? Confess it. And put it in its proper place. Behind Christ. Amen? I said, Amen? Thank you so much. You realize how lonely that is for a pastor to ask for an amen and dead silence? Let's pray.